He's risen. Yeah. Uh, this morning, Easter Sunday morning, we're going to spend some time talking about death. Uh, not usually the most pleasant of conversations, but neither is talking about something being empty. I think this morning we'll find that there is a different perspective on death after you've encountered uh, really Easter, what we celebrate at Easter, Jesus Christ. How do you feel about death? What do you think about when you think about death? This Easter weekend is the time to consider such things. So this week, I sat down for breakfast with my kids and asked them that question to an eight-year-old, a five-year-old and a three-year-old. What do you think about death, kids? A little insight into breakfast around the Mills uh, breakfast table. Light morning conversation. The girls said, makes me sad, makes me scared, and it makes me excited. <laughs> they said they were sad because if they were to die today, they think about all the people they would leave behind. And they would think about all the things they wish they could have done in life before they passed away. Scared because it's unknown, because they don't know about any of the pain that may come with it. And excited because they believe in Jesus and they think about heaven, which is a great thing. How do we feel about death? As you heard from our reading this morning, we are looking at Lazarus's death. And as we travel through our text, I think we're going to see at least four encounters that Jesus has. One with his disciples, the second with Martha, then Mary, and then with Lazarus in the end. And each encounter teaching us something new about death, but more in particular, how the tragedy of death transforms into the glory of life in him. And I hope that we see how very powerful in a way and negative our view of death can be in our life, even now, here, unless we have an understanding as to who Jesus is and what he has come to do. So before we go any further, let's take this time to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks this morning as we remember and turn our minds to think about your Son coming out of that empty tomb. Lord, having defeated death, being the resurrection and the life. And Father, this morning as we spend your time, uh, time thinking about Lazarus, about Martha and Mary and your disciples and the impact of having Jesus uh, on the scene for them. Lord, help us to be able to see how Christ and his resurrection impacts us and gives us life, not just after we have passed away, but a resurrection that impacts today and now, how we live Help this to be real for us, Father, that we might believe in you and rejoice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, Lazarus, Martha and Mary are a family that is well known to Jesus and loved by him, the text says. 
So when Lazarus becomes gravely ill, the two sisters send a message to Jesus. And it's only very simple, very brief. Lord, the one whom you love is ill. There's not much information there, but its brevity gives it gravity, doesn't it? They don't need to say much to imply how serious this is. They don't request Jesus to come. It's assumed that the moment that he hears this message, he will drop what he is doing and come to them. For there's no reason that they would have sent a message like this otherwise. But what does Jesus do? He says calmly, this illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory and so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. John has made a point also of saying that although Jesus loved them, he waited two more days until it seemed he knew that Lazarus had passed away. It was just seemingly contradictory to what he has stated about the illness not leading to death. And then he waits until he has passed away. Because only then is he ready to go to the town of Bethany. Though Jesus would have known of the distress of the sisters, of their sorrow, it seems that Jesus has greater plans for Lazarus's death than simply even healing him. Now let me ask you a question. Does a fear of death stop you from following Jesus? When Jesus makes it clear that their next destination is Judea, the disciples say to him, but Rabbi, we've just left Judea and they were going to stone you. And I think in their minds they were going to stone us. Indeed, in the previous chapter, in chapter 10, Jesus has just finished teaching the Jews in Judea that he is the son of God. And in response, they pick up stones ready to take his life for the blasphemy that he has said. And the disciples are are afraid to follow him back into that region. Afraid to follow Jesus for a fear of death, that they will be killed. Now, they try to put on a brave face, and we see it in Thomas's words at the end of the paragraph. He says with bravado, let's go, and we'll die with him. And yet, despite his brave face, they're still afraid of dying. We see later in the gospel story, when Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they come face to face with the cost of following Jesus, when they're really going to be arrested if they stand with him, where do they go? Their bravado doesn't carry them through. They flee, they disappear. Peter later is seen to deny Jesus three times out of fear of being caught up in what is happening to Jesus. And after Jesus has been resurrected, after that tomb has been found empty, Where does Jesus find them? In a locked room. 
still afraid that they're going to be caught up because they followed Jesus. For them, following Jesus is a fearful thing because of death. And it stops them, stops them from following him. Well, what is Jesus' attitude towards death? He's the epicenter of it. He is not afraid. We see it in his willingness to go to Judea again, given the Jews' attitude towards him at the time. But more powerfully, we see it in the way that he speaks of Lazarus' death. Though he has apparently waited until he has died, he says to to the disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I need to go there to wake him up. For Jesus, the finality of death is as easily recovered from as having a sleep, as waking up in the morning. And when he does resurrect Lazarus, he does it by calling out to the tomb with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. You've been sleeping in. As though that's all he's been doing. And as easy as that, he dispels the power of death. What a difference believing in who Jesus is makes to following him. What do you need to fear if even death has no power before Jesus? We don't need sacrificial bravado to follow Jesus. It doesn't get us anywhere. We need to believe in him. Jesus says to the disciples, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I am glad I wasn't there so that you would believe Imagine that. I'm glad I wasn't there to save my friend. So that you can see my power over resurrection, over life and death. And believe in me. Put your lives in my hands, not in your own. And it is almost surprising to us to realise That you need to believe in Jesus to be able to follow him. Well, when Jesus arrives at Bethany, Martha and Mary come out to see him. Martha first, then Mary. And we see something interesting take place as Jesus interacts with these two women. Both grieve the loss of their brother, Lazarus. Both have faith that if Jesus had been there at the time, he would have been able to save him. That he could have saved him. And yet both, despite this belief, don't display anger towards the Lord. Instead, they both come to Jesus in their grief. And yet despite all of that similarity, they have very different interactions with him. For those similarities, uh, for those maybe who are familiar with the Myers-Briggs personality test, when you receive information, how you process it. Some are classified as thinkers, others as feelers. Martha would be classified as a thinker and Mary a feeler. 
We can see it in how they handle Lazarus' death. Martha comes to Jesus to process her thoughts on what has happened. How does her brother's death fit into the grand scheme of the world? And Mary comes with tears and sorrow. Does this resonate with us a little? How we process information. I'm sure many of us, I'm definitely a Martha. Uh, For Martha, who is seeking to make sense of her brother's death, he teaches her. He's gentle, but he gently argues with her. And what is it they argue about? It must be the most important thing. Where does Jesus take her in her grief? What is it that he believes is absolutely necessary for Martha to know so that she can make sense of what has happened? He brings her to an understanding of who he is. The most important thing that Martha needs to know right now in all of her sorrow, in all of her confusion, trying to make sense of her world that has been turned upside down by her brother's passing, is who Jesus is. You see, Martha believes in Jesus in a way. She believes that he is a man with a unique and a powerful relationship with God. She even says uh, that if Jesus had been there, he he would have been able to heal. Even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him, Jesus. But when Jesus responds, your brother will rise again. An answer that makes absolute sense if you are able to state, I believe God will give you anything if you ask of it. She diminishes his response. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha doesn't believe in a Jesus that can bring back a person right here and right now. She's a product of their culture. For in Jewish culture, you either didn't believe in a resurrection at all or you believed that it would happen one day in a distant future, a distant comfort. And so she hears Jesus say those words, your brother will rise again, and she puts them into a box that fits her current thinking. And she not only misunderstands Jesus, but she misses the hope and the joy of the words that he gives her. Can you imagine better words to someone who is grieving the loss of someone than to say, I'll bring them back. I'll restore them to you. But she misses it because she doesn't understand who Jesus is. This is something though he will endeavour to fix I am the resurrection and the life, he says to her. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, he says to her. 
Stop, Martha. The way you see the world is wrong. Resurrected life is not a distant, comfortless hope at the, at the end of days. Here and now before you, it's me. I don't just come with power over life and death to raise people. I am the resurrection and the life. And when you believe in me, you become a part of me, part of my resurrection, part of my life. You may taste death like Lazarus. But if you believe in me like he did, death will not hold you. It will be like waking up from sleep into a new life. So stop, Martha. Stop trying to make sense of the world and looking for hope in death without me in the picture. Because there isn't any hope without me in the picture. I am the resurrection and the life. And his finishing words are poignant, aren't they? Do you believe in this? Martha, do you believe in me? Do we believe in this this morning? How many times have we said already, he is risen, he is risen indeed. What changes it makes to how we follow Jesus if he is the resurrection and the life and we believe it. What difference it makes to how we see the world if death is not the end. Belief in Christ is. Now Martha responds to Jesus' question of belief by saying, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. She seems to have it down. But knowing the words and having the faith are two different things. For when Jesus asked them a little later in the story to roll that stone away from Lazarus's tomb, it's Martha who says, wait, the stench is going to be too much. He's already been dead for four days. Still, she doesn't connect the dots. Did I not tell you, Jesus says to her, that if you believed in me, you would see the glory of God? It all comes down to who Jesus is. Now that is Jesus' softly spoken argument with Martha the thinker. But what of Mary the feeler? After Martha comes Mary, along with a number of other Jews that have followed her from the house. And she says to Jesus the same statement of faith that Mary did, uh, that Martha did. The exact same sentence, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And she weeps and she cries for the loss of her brother and maybe even for the loss of Jesus and for the sorrow she would have felt for him for having lost someone that he loved. And the people around her are moved and cry as well. And Jesus, 
How does he respond? Keeping in mind, he intentionally stayed away two extra days until Lazarus had passed away. Keeping in mind that he has grand plans for Lazarus' death. Keeping in mind that he plans on growing the disciples' faith through this, through witnessing him resurrect them. And keeping in mind who he is and that death for him is like an afternoon kip. And lastly, we keep in mind how he answered this statement from Martha with correction and with teaching. So how do we expect Jesus to respond? It says that he was deeply moved in his spirit. He was greatly troubled and he wept. Despite having great plans of resurrection and belief, despite his authority over death, he weeps tears of sorrow because he loves his people and he is not a distant, emotionless puppeteer of history who orchestrates the affairs of men but never gets involved with them. He is a man who feels sorrow at the pain that death inflicts upon his beloved people, even while having great salvation plans. Mary's encounter, though plain in appearance, asks the question of what do we do with the pain and the suffering of death? We know from Martha and the disciples that death has an end in Jesus. But what of the suffering? What of the pain? Well, Mary shows us that we are to take our tears to Jesus and he will take them upon himself and he will bring them to an end as well. Two weeks ago, I spoke on Jesus as the suffering servant that in his humanity he bears all the tears, the pain, the loneliness, the rejection, the shame and the guilt of our sin and he takes it to the grave in himself. And when he rises to life, as the resurrection and the life, it's gone. He promises a day that we see in Revelation 21 verse 4, where he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for they have passed away. They're gone in him, in his resurrection, in his life. But he must be the one to take those tears the one you believe in that will bring you into his resurrection life. What a difference believing in who Jesus is makes to sorrow and pain, to our grief. I have a letter here. It's a copy of a letter that Catherine's grandfather, Richard Grace, wrote after the death of their son, Charles. 
when he was 18 months old. It was written to a cult that they used to be a part of called the Exclusive Brethren uh, that they had only left a few years later. And after their son had passed away, Richard had heard rumour that they were teaching and telling the people inside of their church that this was a judgment upon the family because they had left the exclusive brethren. Richard wrote this. To my very dear friends, many of you will already have heard of the recent death of our son Charles. He was an exceptionally strong and healthy boy, but was stricken with a virus which developed in only four days to viral pneumonia. Every possible medical aid was given, but on the fifth day, God took him. How great is God's love. What a wonderful plan he has for each of us. During a period of loneliness, he gave us this lively little boy. Now, when we have found so many friends and fellow workers and the need of communicating the gospel to men has begun to seize us, he has taken him away again. For Charles, we could ask for nothing better. He is already in the presence of Jesus. We can truly say, thank you, God, for lending him to us for so long. Death, especially of a dearly loved one, always causes us to evaluate our position before God. How futile our efforts to obtain glory in this world are. In a moment of time, this scene can be ended. What will there be left that will stand before God? Have we been building on the rock foundation with fireproof material? Whatever work, whatever trials, however great our testimony, our only justification before God is no more and no less than that of his dear little one. The blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He alone must be our Lord. We felt keenly the death of our son, but surely this was nothing to the way God feels about the death of his his only beloved one. Could anything be likened to it? Was there ever any event compared with it? Would we even dare to suggest there is any saviour to talk about but him? He is our beloved and only he. God has used this sorrowful event to make the death of his beloved even more precious to us. The testing has been great, but as always, the grace supplied is even greater. If God is exercising you with regards to your walk, I would be delighted to share these exercises with you. Please do not hesitate to contact me. My wife unites in sending our warm love to you all. May the Lord bless you. I am your affectionate Christian friend. And to many, your brother in Christ, Richard R. Grace. Here is a man that took his tears to Jesus. His grief and his sorrow. 
and just look at how it changes the way that he can hold his grief. Even in the face of being told such horrible things, that it was a judgment from God. And it changes it into an action of love to invite them to see Christ with him. We have heard Jesus speak to the disciples, to Martha and to Mary, but what of Lazarus? Jesus' encounter with Lazarus is quite a bit different, as we would expect, because Lazarus is dead. And the people around Jesus, as they draw near to the tomb, are whispering amongst themselves a familiar thought. Isn't this the one who opened the eyes of the blind man? Couldn't he have kept this man from dying? Three times now, John, the author of the gospel, has brought up the idea with the sisters and now with random Jews that if Jesus had just been there when Lazarus was ill, he could have saved him. But for them, he was too late. Lazarus was dead and there was no power on earth that could overcome death. It was a missed opportunity. Little did they know. The constant reminder of Jesus' lateness to the scene is given to us who know that he was late on purpose. Remember what Jesus said upon hearing about Lazarus' illness. This illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God will be glorified through it. And as he comes to the tomb, as he comes face to face with death, John tells us again that Jesus is greatly disturbed. And the Greek here says that he is greatly disturbed, not with tears as he was with Mary, but with anger and fury and the howling of an animal. Like he bellowed at fear, at death. He is angry at death. Keller put it, that Jesus faced the tomb as a champion of life against our enemy of death. And it has its grip on the one that he loves. So he has the stone rolled away from the tomb. Though Lazarus has been dead for four days. And the fourth day in Jewish culture marks the pinnacle of mourning for the dead. Because, as Martha has put it, the stench has set in. The body is decaying. The fourth day is the mark of no return, of no hope. It is the day that Jesus waited for. And as the stone rolls away, he prays, Father, I thank you for hearing me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said these things for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you have sent me. And he prays, it appears not for himself, not even for the resurrection, but for the people that need to see him praying. 
the people that need it so that they will believe. And again, he counsels the people around him. Even at this moment, the people giving them not the minimal requirements that were required to achieve resurrection, but all that was needed so that they would believe in who Jesus was. This was for them. They would believe that he was the son of God. And so he calls out in a loud voice. Again, like waking someone up from a lion. Lazarus, come out. And just like that, death loses its grip. And Lazarus walks out wrapped up in bandages. Just like that, Martha and Mary and the weeping Jews begin to weep again, I'm sure, but no longer in sorrow, but in joy of a life restored, a loved one that's been returned to them. And the people, the world's totally reshuffled because of Jesus. Because it says that in witnessing this, they believed in him. With him on the scene, death was no longer the final mark. Now it is quite a simple scene when read. Jesus calls out, death is defeated, Lazarus walks out. And just like, uh, where am I up to, sorry. But even in its simplicity, there is power in this scene. Not only in the victory over death, and the end of sorrow that we have seen again and again counted by Jesus in this passage, but that in the rising of Lazarus in the book of John, it marks the turn of Jesus' walk to the cross. It is in the very next paragraph after this passage that we read that the Pharisees and the chief priests, after witnessing and hearing about this miracle above all the others, that they begin to plot his death. Because he has made himself known, not just with words, but in power, that he is the Son of God. And because as with Lazarus's death, his own death is planned, and he walks towards it intentionally, so that he would be resurrected and point to the glory of God and so that the Son of God would be glorified through his own death so that we might believe. And when he stands at Lazarus's tomb as a champion of life against death, he begins the defeat of death for us all, any who believe in him. Not so that we would be happy or so that we would be filled with joy. You actually notice that there is no mention of Mary or Martha being joyful. It says the fruit of the resurrection was belief. Without Jesus' own resurrection, Lazarus's would have been an act of futility. Only to live and die another day. But with his resurrection, 
with his life. Those who believe in him, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Let's give thanks. Lord Jesus, I believe that you have spoken to us this morning and showed us something more, something new of you, Lord. Hopefully a refreshment in who you are as the resurrection and the life. Heavenly Father, there are so many things that I realize we are not aware of that are stopping us from following you at times. So many fears of death. Not always the pain of it, but sometimes the fear of missing out on on life. But you are the resurrection and the life. Outside of you, there is no true joy, no true hope. Father, I pray this morning that we have seen it all comes down to who you are. And what you have done that we might live. Thank you that you went to Lazarus's tomb in the timing that you did. Thank you that you went to your own in the timing that you did. And to hear those words that you did all of that so that we might believe. For us. Lord God, let us remember this. And hold on to a knowledge of your son as we walk through this world. As we encounter new fears that that we become aware of. That maybe we've held on to for a long time. And bring them to you. See them in the light of your death and your resurrection. And watch even death's power be stripped away from it. Lord, that we might wake up and live in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.